Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, a writer and producer for such shows as The Librarians, Agent X, and author of the upcoming So Say We All, an oral history of Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I'm here on today's episode of the 430 movie, and this is a special report. A special report? Special report. Today we'll be looking at the rise and fall of physical media, and once again we're with our regular panelists uh, from, you know him from, of course, uh, such shows as X-Men, the animated series, Transformers Prime, and as a writer for uh, Star Wars Rebels and the upcoming Star Wars Resistance, Stephen Melching. Hello there. And a uh, very well-known Hollywood conceptual designer. He's worked on such films as Chronicles of Riddick. He was visual effects supervisor on Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition and just completed work on season two of Westworld, Darren Docterman. Well, hi there. And last but not least, we have the writer of the upcoming uh, Red Sonja film as well as a screenwriter for such films as X-Men First Class, Thor, and in addition to his TV work on uh, such shows as Black Sails and Fringe, he has Lore Season 2 coming up on Amazon in October. Mr. Ashley E. Miller. Greetings and salutations. Well, So, the 430 movie uh, is an homage to the classic 430 movie that we used to watch as kids in the 70s and 80s. Back before the advent of VHS, chances are if you saw a classic movie, it was on the 430 movie. With these famous theme weeks, it was a chance to see movies you never saw and get reacquainted with some old classics. Now on the 430 movie, we take over the vertical and the horizontal and put together our dream theme weeks that you could watch at home and relive the glory days of the 430 movie. But today is a special report, and we'll be looking at the dawn of the video era, which you could blame for the death of the 430 movie. Exactly. VHS. I mean, even did anybody have, before VHS, it was what, Selectivision? Did anybody have Selectivision? Didn't, but no. I wish that I did, even though I had no idea what was on it. I had Betamax. We had Betamax. Uh, you the, were the, the one. The first, yeah, the first home video I, I remember seeing my neighbors down the street had a Betamax machine in 1980. And uh, we would watch, uh, you know, a couple of movies that had come out in, that year or the next year, the Blues Brothers and, um, you know, shows like that. And then we got our own Betamax machine uh, that uh, I still have in my closet and it still works because it was very quickly supplanted by VHS. So we had to all right. buy new machines and uh, and start over. We Me never at, at our home, we never had uh, uh, cable until I was in high school and we never had a VHS machine or any videotape machine at all until I was off in college. Really? So, uh, and uh, it's it's kind of an odd thing because I always felt left out, and all my friends had uh, had video recorders, um, and I didn't. But uh, I think I made up for it later because I, I got into Laserdisc and all that sort of stuff later on. But um, I do remember my cousin had uh, uh, they had a VHS machine, and they had the first time I'd ever seen bootleg. Uh, videos mm. of films, and I remember seeing a Star Wars bootleg that looked absolutely terrible. But <laughs> rem remembering that it was, oh my God, it's Star Wars at, that, in your like, house, in, in, in house. the house, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it was quite amazing uh, at the time, and I, I just remember uh, being very intrigued with it. But uh, I was so distanced from it that it didn't really hit home until much later on. I had cousins that had. Selectivision, which was a, a uh, like a phonograph where there was a needle right. that went onto a record which would play a movie 
And I was so very jealous of the fact that they were <laughs> able to watch movies at home. And I remember to this day more vividly than practically any memory of the 70s walking into it was a store in Herald Square, New York called Willoughby's. It was a, a, a really great electronic store. And there in the counter, this was, I guess, 1980, it must have been 1980, was um, a Betamax of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. And I just, at that point, whatever it took, I knew I wanted a VHS uh, or Betamax. I had to have, and it was a couple years before I actually got one, but that was like, oh my God, you can watch Star Trek The Motion Picture at home. This right. is just like the coolest thing ever. And uh, we can't underestimate what a seismic development home video was um, to, to film lovers because prior to that point, the only way to watch your vis video entertainment was to go to a movie theater and pay, buy your ticket and sit in the movie theater and watch it or sit in front of your television set when right. the show or the movie was on. You couldn't time shift. You, you had to park your ass in front of that TV. Well, this was also back when you would get the next week's TV guide on the Friday before. Yes. And I, I know I would go through page by page and mm -hmm. see what was going to be on so that I could plan out the week and make sure I didn't miss anything. Absolutely. Well, I had no experience with, with any of this because uh, I was actually raised Amish. So while uh, you guys, <laughs> you know, I was churning butter. I was raising barns. I, I didn't even know what well, a VHS was until I started my porn career in 1989. You didn't have the 430 <laughs> movie. You had the 430 milking. That's exactly in, in the morning. right. And sometimes I watched. Yeah, eagerly. Sure. Well, sometimes a little more eagerly than others. It depended on uh, on who well, the milkmaid. Was. I mean, we talked about this before. <laughs> what was so great was, you know, now with uh, content being so readily available, people tend to continue to watch the same thing they like over and over again. But back then, you were exposed to all kinds of films because that's what was on. So you would watch it, you know, regardless of uh, whether it was something you were interested in. Because it was on. Right. And, if and you we... were homesick or something, you mm -hmm. had three channels to choose from, three networks, PBS, and maybe an independent channel or two. Right. And you, if you wanted to watch television, you watched what was on one of those five or six channels. And sometimes you were just so bored, you're like, well, yeah, sure, I'll watch you I'll, know, I'll this watch movie. whatever this thing is that I have never heard of. And then sometimes it was a good surprise. Sometimes it was a bad surprise. Although I will say that... On top of, well, by the way, the whole, you guys know that the whole story about being an Amish porn star is totally made up. <laughs> um, uh -huh. a, a little made up. Uh, but <laughs> what you said about kind of going through the, the TV guide and looking for, oh, what's going to be on this week? You know, right. what can I come home and, and watch? Every so often, there would be, you know, that, that movie that we were just so excited to see and hadn't seen in forever because right. there was no such thing as on demand. Like, I may or may not have faked illness <laughs> on days like that just so that I could watch King Kong versus Godzilla. You know, I understand that. I, I don't condone it, but I know it happened many times. <laughs> I, when, when you were talking about that, it just made me remember that when I, was, when I used to rifle through um, uh, TV Guide and I would be reading these things really fast, and I remember... Stopping on a on a title that I saw, <coughs> pardon me, um, and it said, oh, oh, back to no, it's back to Batan, not Batman. <laughs> I used to get fooled by that all the time. It was, it was intentional. Well, I, I vividly remember being so excited when we got the TV guide and there was a movie listed that I'd only ever read about in the pages of Starlog. 
the Quester tapes, right? The Gene Roddenberry thing that you know it only existed as a few still photographs and an article in a magazine, and um, you know I had to make sure I was in front of my TV that day when it was going to be on so I could see it. And then you get the you know your parents calling you from upstairs or wherever. It's like shut up, <laughs> we're trying to watch the movie. You know, it's like I can wait take for the out commercial the trash later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I got my first VCR VHS. It was it was pretty early in the 80s. I mean, my brother and I were pretty convinced we were getting one. We used to get our Hanukkah presents on Christmas morning. And so we were pretty convinced. And we we're really disappointed because there was no box that mm. fit, you know, looking at the wrap boxes that fit the dimensions of the... So we're like, oh my God, could we have been so wrong? Were we wrong about this? And it was so funny because we opened all our presents and it was a horrible Christmas because we go through each... <laughs> and, and and no, it wouldn't be. And my hey, father sucks. Well, it's funny. My father used to screw with us by it was really funny. He would he would wrap stuff from our rooms as that's extra great. presents. Oh, so we'd open great. Oh our sneakers. Thanks, Dad. That's and, awesome. you know, so he would there would be these phony, you know, things. So we would open all the presents and it was like, Oh, we didn't get a VCR. We were so disappointed. And suddenly there was a knock at the door about ten minutes later, it was our aunt our aunt, Aunt Beth. Um, and and she was carrying this giant box, like, oh, and we opened it up, oh. and we still have these old Kodak Instamatic photos of me and my brother, and I, I the look of ecstasy on our faces. It's just we're so excited, um, and of course from there we just started. Um, uh, uh, renting and taping and and getting tapes because we didn't have in Brooklyn they didn't have cable so most right. people would tape off HBO these movies and stuff we didn't have that so we were really at the mercy of Captain Video and and these different and different stores and I can tell you to this day the first movie we ever rented Sharky's Machine wow I don't know why <laughs> well, let, let every just, little boy's favorite <laughs> let me just back you up a little bit here um, so I can get the image in my head was this the VHS machine that came in two parts the tuner section and the tape machine version because some of the do you remember this a lot of the early machines were two came in two components that you hooked together and one of them was no, it was a huge, bulky thing, and you press a button, and it was almost loader. like Spock's. So it was uh, like the Magna. It was like the Magnavox. The, the, the big Magnavox. It was. It was the yeah. big Magnavox, and um, it lasted for many, many, many years. Well, of course, it I was think a tank. So, it was, yeah, it was a tank like a tank that played movies. You could kill somebody with that because I moved yeah. it from. I brought it to college eventually, and right. I brought it to you know when I moved to Manhattan before I came out to California, and it lasted. It lasted uh, many years. Now, of course, you buy. You know, a new Blu-ray player or DVD, you're lucky if it lasts a year because it's planned obsolescence. My first uh, video machine of my own I bought with, I think, the the second and third paychecks I got on the Abyss 30 years ago this week. Wow. <laughs> and I, I ordered it from this mail order place and, and got it down in South Carolina, and it was the first VHS machine I'd ever owned, and it was the most magical part of my life. I had just turned 21, and I thought, now I am a man. <laughs> it was it was just wonderful, and it's just so funny that it's it's the anniversary this week, which is amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> I have to say, I'm amazed that you didn't have that experience, which I, I imagine you guys did. Which was, you know, when when VCRs first came out in Betamax, Steve, um, they uh, uh, everything was priced for rental, yes. right? So it, it was to encourage rental. The studios were concerned about piracy, the, which it, meant that these tapes cost like eighty to a hundred dollars, which in, at in, least in nineteen eighty dollars, which is like. Like two or three hundred dollars. So unless today. you, you know, you didn't buy them, you'd rent them and you'd give them back, or right. you'd figure out a way to hook up two players and tape it, you know, or whatever. Right. Um, but um, I remember Paramount 
decided they were going to break out of this right. paradigm. Yep. And so they announced popularly priced titles in 1983, Officer and Gentleman mm -hmm. and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan for 39.95, which was a huge bargain. This is amazing. It was the first time that, you know, they were priced for sale through. And I remember saving up my allowance and my babysitting money and like walking, you know, just like it was it was like marching you know across <laughs> town to the one you know video store that i knew sold stuff where i could buy it and it was i mean i must have watched it i don't know how many times that day well, an I, officer I, and a gentleman yeah <laughs> officer and gentleman that's right that's, yeah. i think my first was was also part of that paramount line shortly thereafter was raiders of the lost ark yes. right. um, which came with a trailer for indiana jones and the that's temple right. of doom which had no footage because they were <laughs> Filming on location yeah. in You're not nuts, you're crazy. And, Macau. Uh, <laughs> Macau in the, <laughs> Sri Lanka in the Indian Ocean and in London. Filming. Filming. The, the greatest, greatest adventure, adventure of all time. Indiana, Indiana Jones and, and the Temple, Temple of Doom. No time Trust for love, me. Dr. Jones. <laughs> uh, but I watched that Raiders of the Lost Ark tape yep. almost every single weekend for years. It was ridiculous. I watched either that or the original Star Wars uh, every single weekend. I'd get my beanbag chair. I'd hook up my stereo from my bedroom. I'd bring all the components out into the living room, hook it up to the to the VHS machine. It didn't create stereo because we couldn't really play stereo in those <laughs> days, but it made the sound big instead of coming out of that little TV set. Stoker. I had the same thing. I bought the adapter at Radio Shack mm -hmm. where I did the aux out into the stereo. Right. So at least there was a sense of an immersive yep. soundscape. Uh, and a little, so like when yeah. V'ger like played that funky bass line? Off the starboard oh. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, wow, yeah. it's Peter. He's like teasing the house. <laughs> but, you know, as we're saying, you know, these these early uh, this early home video was fantastic, but it was also very limiting. It was very expensive. It was bulky. Uh, you were either renting your tapes or finding a way to tape them off TV or, or duping them from a video rental. The quality was not great. You know, it was you're watching it probably on a 19 or 27 inch television. It's that 480, you know, uh, quality. If you're watching a dupe, you're second or third generation removed. Well, the funny thing is, at the time, we didn't really realize the quality was all that right. bad because yeah. we've been no used basis. to broadcast television, yeah. which is terrible. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. On it was, terrible TV. Yeah. yeah. It's like watching, like, you know, 4K HD compared to watching it on broadcast. <laughs> I mean, and for me, you know, I would spend my afternoons, I had an afternoon babysitter when I was in elementary school and, and middle school. and. It, no, this is not going to go back to the Amish milkmaid. Oh, place. okay. No, but uh, it, it was an HBO movie. <laughs> it was. Um, no, she had a, uh, a VCR, and it completely changed my relationship with movies. I mm. didn't get to go with my dad and my older brother a lot because right. the perception was I was a sensitive child who grew into a very insensitive man. <laughs> um, so when I discovered the VCR, suddenly, suddenly, I was able to see these things that seem so interesting to me. Like, what is this Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know, what is that about? Um, it's not about Noah and a boat. Really, it's not, which really confused me. Like, what the <laughs> hell is an ark? To this day, no one can explain it. <laughs> <laughs> and why were they raiding it? 
<laughs> it's funny when I first read about Raiders of the Lost Ark in, in, in Starlog, I thought it was about Noah's Ark also. Yeah, I know. Well, because I had already seen the Sun Classic pictures in search of Noah's Me Ark. Me too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> on the on the on the hills of Mount Ararat. Yeah, yeah. And that was our frame of reference. That and a picture of Harrison Ford wearing some kind of a weird cowboy hat. Right. Like, I, do I want to see that? I don't, I, don't I, don't, know. I don't know about this. <laughs> but there's something to be said of the era where there was, you know, you talk about spoiler alerts. I mean, you knew nothing about a movie. You saw the yeah. one sheet, and right. maybe you saw the trailer. And you knew, like, oh, Harrison Ford's in this. He was in Star Wars. I'll go see it. Maybe there would be an article in Starlog or something yeah. a month or two before it came out. Well, my but. favorite with the Starlog was when, you know, Star Wars came out. And you would, you know, voraciously want to vacuum up anything about Star Wars. And they had the cover of Starlog number seven, which was Star Wars. And all it was was one page with two <laughs> Ralph McQuarrie conceptual <laughs> illustrations. Right. And it was like, what? this isn't about Star Wars. This is like a little thing and cool pictures. But, and, and, and I mean, uh, but it was like, where's the Star Wars article? But in a way, it was sort of neat that, you know, it wasn't really until you had the making of Star Wars on TV where they started to sort of peel back the curtain. You right. Know, so, Mark, it. is that colossal disappointment at those Starlog non-articles about Star Wars what motivated a young Mark Altman to grow up and write articles about Star Wars? Yeah, uh, uh, possibly. <laughs> I, I, you know, I mean, because we, as as early as 1978, I was doing a, a mimeographed fanzine called the Galactic Journal with my friends in middle school, and we did that through college. And I mean, we were, you know, as, as kids, like interviewing like actors and producers and and. Uh, authors and so yeah it was i mean it was definitely and, and i remember so, it was so like was some kind of a uh a physical blog you're saying what no, is no, no 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah it was like uh, yeah i mean ink on paper and you would read it and you would actually have to mail it out to the people who subscribed it was mail a product of a more civilized age <laughs> but long before uh, the internet and everyone in their basement doing uh, a freaking blog with their ill-informed opinions. Um, but of course, after VHS, we had the next great advancement in home video physical media, the Laserdisc. Right. Right. Which, which was along. a quantum leap it was. in quality and, uh, and price. And <laughs> price. Yeah. I mean, the you know, those Criterion Laserdiscs were going for, at the time, anywhere between $80 and $150, sometimes $200. But... They were, uh, you know, the slow speed CAV uh, uh, um, recordings that, you know, took up like four discs for a, 30 a, minutes per side. Yeah. You had to flip these things over or you had to it, unless you had an auto one that would automatically right. flip sides. And those machines these were, were like eight hundred dollars. These were 12 inch optical discs that w were really heavy. For those of you listening at home who don't realize what these are there's a little scene in back to the future 2 <laughs> that you might look at on itunes um that uh has in the in the alley behind uh in, in future hill in, valley, in future in hill valley you'll see a dumpster area where all these are being compacted and thrown away uh those are laser discs don't be afraid and they're not just really you. shiny records. Right. And so at the records, time, that, right. was, uh, right. that was hilarious but uh, and, and prescient, but uh, several years too late, actually. Right, right. <laughs> that format had died yeah. out. Well, and, and there were about six of us who actually bought Laserdisc. You know, it, it, it's funny because, um, you know, it was such, like you said, Darren, such a quantum leap in terms of quality and sound mm -hmm. and, and uh, 
uh, it was really the birth of uh, special features. Absolutely. You know, you started to have commentaries and and documentaries, and so for anybody who was a cinephile, it was a really uh, it was a treat. It would you never had do... mainstream appeal, so it really targeted the the connoisseur of 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 cinema. It was the pinnacle of quality of NTSC video. Yes, yeah. you could do a crystal never clear freeze frame for the first time. You couldn't right. really do that on VHS. There would right. all be some some. Well, some people noise. tried on Fast Times at Ridgemont yeah. High <laughs> uh, because whenever you would rent that, it would always be like, what what what's what's going on with this tape? And then it's like, aha. All those. Well, incidentally, uh, Lucasfilm uh, created a an editing system called the Edit Droid back in 1983, I believe. And Glenn Larson created one. It was called the Edit Drone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Edit Droid used laser discs to hold the uh, the footage that you would edit with because it was so easy to manipulate and freeze frame and all that. And it. One of the reasons why the Edit Droid failed was because it was so expensive to transfer footage to Laserdiscs and be able to edit with it that it died a well, horrible death. Laserdisc was also the first video format where you had more or less instant random access to any point on the disc. You Correct. could chapter skip ahead rather than in tapes. You're fast forwarding or rewinding and trying to get to a specific scene that you might want to watch. And as such, it made it possible for bonus material to be extensive like uh, um, still collections uh, that you could that you could scream mm. through scripts, yeah. all sorts of uh, of uh, interesting uh, behind the scenes footage that they would add just to fill up the space on the laserdisc. I mean, laserdisc was a, a really special medium. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's been eclipsed in terms of quality, but I, I don't think there's any home video medium that has the kind of passion and 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 fondness that we all have for it. In fact. I want to sort of take this to a more personal level because, in a way, um, Laserdisc really had a lot to do with, with the exception of Ashley, of us all becoming uh, friends, you know. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you guys could uh, talk a little bit about those great uh, uh, Laserdisc expeditions of, of your. I mean, I, I, I first tell me where you got your first Laserdisc player. I got mine uh, in the early 90s when I first moved out to California. It was the one thing I knew uh, more than anything that I wanted to get. So when I. Uh, moved uh, to California, I think one of the first things I did was go to uh, Ken Cranes in Huntington Beach right. and bought a Laserdisc player and my first. And they gave you three discs oh. when you purchased your player. Right. And I know one was Dancing with Wolves, the other one was um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, oh. and I have no idea what the third <laughs> one was. Probably a, a less known Kevin Costner movie. Uh, <laughs> I, it's 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 I, I it's, it's so funny. I it, I can't remember what the third one was, but I remember getting those three discs, and you know I hooked it up, and it was just. I mean, even now it gives me chills to think about you know getting that that laserdisc player because it was such a an evolution and a step up from uh, from VHS. In college, I was blessed to have found a roommate who was a techie and uh, had the best collection of uh, audiovisual stuff I'd ever seen. Um, and he had a Laserdisc collection and a machine. And he showed it to me, and I went, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And he had, a, you know, already this was in uh, 1986, and he had a collection of at least a couple hundred Laserdiscs. Wow. And uh, I was you know, gobsmacked because I hadn't seen anything like this quality ever before. And um, and it just sort of, uh, you know, it tided me over until I could afford to get these things later on. Um, 
but uh, I, I didn't I didn't get my own machine till much later, probably till 1990 or something like that. Uh, and you know, by that time, you know, we'd go to Dave's Video in uh, in Studio City or uh, uh, the Evolution. Laser Laser Blazer Laser Blazer in uh, West LA. Uh, the Evolution uh, uh, Laserdisc uh, store out near Agora, yeah, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was out in Agora. And uh, the hills. And but these were all were uh, you know video aficionados and you know really uh, insane people would go to collect these uh, you know generally hard to find titles because not a lot of places would sell it. It, it, it was not uncommon especially in uh, at Dave's video in uh, in uh, Studio City to see uh, stars or directors sure. browsing the aisles uh, buying armloads of laser discs for their collections. But you did have a few places because Tower Records had a Tower Video across sure. the street on Sunset. They had a fairly good laser disc selection. And then I think eventually they moved it across the street. And then, of course, the Virgin Megastore opened yeah. on Sunset, which had an excellent um, uh, selection as well. Right. But for the real deep cuts, you would go down to. Ken Crane in Huntington right. Beach. Right. And Steve, you want to talk about what that was like? Yeah, Tell us, well, Steve. yeah, there'd be a, a group of us. I, I got my first player in 93 when I was working at as a puppeteer at Universal Studios Hollywood and had access to the Universal Company store. So I uh, saved up my paychecks and bought uh, a player and a, and a surround sound system. I had already bought the Star Wars defi trilogy definitive collection box set the big in blacks. anticipation, the big oh, black right box, box yeah. in anticipation of getting a laserdisc player. Um, but yeah, you're talking about a, a group of us uh, that had started to become friends. Discovered we had a, a mutual passion for home video. Home video, like Jerry <laughs> Todd from SCTV. Uh, we would uh, we loved our laserdiscs and. Periodically, these stores would have a big sale, and since these discs were so expensive, you definitely want to take advantage of these sales. So we would rendezvous and drive together, pile into a car, drive down to Orange County or out mm -hmm. to Canoga Park to go to these sales and and eagerly pour over the shelves. Well, wait online. Wait in for line. Like two oh hours my gosh! Yeah, before some, they open. Yeah, some, wait in line. They can only let so many people in at a time. And, and hope that all the stuff you wanted didn't get picked over before you got in. And remember, this was the first time that any uh, uh, consumer uh, offerings had letterbox. Mm -hmm. Yes, had Good actual you know standard the the standard movie um, frames. On a video scene. I retained the aspect ratio that the films were. Well, yeah. you remember the only VHS that was released letterboxed? Did anyone? For... I don't. Well, yes. You do? Go ahead. Interspace. No, no. It wasn't? No. <laughs> it... No. no. Go back to, to, to Amish Milk and Cows. Um, <laughs> so, no, I will tell what you. Was it? What was it? It was Manhattan. Woody Allen insisted oh. on maintaining the aspect ratio of, of Manhattan. Yeah, and so it was put out um, in 185 with le gray letterboxing. Right. Um, but it's, uh, you know, uh, when it came out on Laserdisc, it was replaced by black letterboxing. But, uh, but it's interesting because the first time I noticed letterboxing was on the 430 movie. Oh really? Because because they used to have the main title sequences letterboxed because oh, yes. they yeah. they couldn't oh. compress yeah, it yeah, for yeah, TV yeah, yeah. and they would be cutting off things yeah. from the frame. So they would have these sort of interesting patterns and textures filling out the frame, um, and it was just the weirdest thing. I said, 
where is this coming from? I don't remember this in the movie. That's really <laughs> interesting. You know, and it's funny because really the only time you saw where you didn't have a situation like that was with the James Bond movies because Maurice Binder would do TV versions right. of the opening mm -hmm. credits where it would be done in 133 and they would also obscure the nudity right. because the nudity was an issue for ABC when they aired it. So he, he would make a TV versions of the opening credits for the Bond movies which were similar but not Exactly the same. There's nothing worse than obscure nudity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> no, but these these trips uh, were real bonding experiences for us when we were younger because we would, you know, we spent a lot of time in the car together. We would, uh, you know, go to lunch afterwards and uh, sing songs, sing songs of conquest. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, after, those, were, those were fun times. But you forget the most, the, the best part about it. Whoever spent the most money would have lunch picked up for them by yes. the other people. Because we would spend a couple hundred bucks. Sometimes oh, at over least. a thousand bucks. Wow. Yeah. You know? I, I well, remember a couple times. Speak for yourself. I, I never spent more than that. I, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I, I know I did a couple of times. I know Rob certainly did, I think. And then we'd go to Arby's or to um, uh, Mexican uh, Mexi usually Mexican. <laughs> and, um, and, and whoever spent the most money would have their Right, because Arby's was right up. down the street. Arby's was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember a couple uh, t tallies that were well over $1,000. Yeah, well, uh, well you'd, you could barely hold the, all the Laserdiscs you were taking out. And, and the and tragedy big. of it all is when Laserdiscs went away and we were all upgrading to DVD. I mean, I know I did, and I, I think you did. And we still had a ton of Laserdiscs in their original shrimp shrink wrapping oh, that yeah. we never watched. Yeah. You know, but sometimes, as we would say, as we said, I think in Free Enterprise, uh, it's just enough to know they're there. Yes. You know, I still and... have all my laser discs. Do you? All of them. I, have collector value. I yeah. sold a lot of mine. Because they're coming back. If if record albums are back, <sighs> laser discs are coming back. I sold most of mine at Amoeba early when e Amoeba first opened and the transition was happening. And then... I found a friend of mine still swears by Laserdisc, um, the visual effects supervisor on librarians, a guy named Brad Kilinowski who lives in Atlanta. He still uh, just has a Laserdisc player, only watches uh, Laserdisc, feels it's the best format. And so I, I basically packed up a box, at, you know, and sent him, God knows how much it cost me, this mm -hmm. box of, of Laserdisc because... I love knowing at least they had a good home. It's like giving away your your your, your kids to a foster family. It's like the so end I, of Toy Story three, you know. So I, <laughs> I sent uh, sent all the laserdiscs I hadn't sold because a lot of my better titles I held on to. Well, of course, one of the last um, one of the last titles that Pioneer actually struck on laserdisc was Free Enterprise. Right, our movie, which yeah. we was a love letter yeah. to laserdiscs because even at the time that we made Free Enterprise. Um, uh, DVDs had had come out, but we were so anti-DVD that we said we're going to ignore DVD, and it dates the movie worse than anything. Yeah, uh, but it, we're going to ignore DVDs and just talk about Laserdisc. So there's all this. There's a scene where they go to um, Laser Blazer. Yeah. I think that was a deleted scene. Uh, they, they talk about these Laserdiscs. There was yeah. a scene where we. I remember we cleared the Logan's Run special edition from MGM, which is this beautiful black. CAV disc, uh, and that was in the movie. I think that may have gotten cut out also, but um, it was a total love letter to Laserdiscs, and it, 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 it's, it's A completely ridiculous. unrequited love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember when Pioneer put out Free Enterprise on Laserdiscs. Yep. Still, that I still have yep. framed, and uh, I'm very proud of the fact that we were there for the death knell of yeah. uh, Laserdiscs. You personally killed Laserdiscs. <laughs> you <Congratulations>. can vouch <laughs> for. But, I mean, I know Rob and I were both very much like, you know, because those early DVDs were awful. 
Yes. You know? Yeah. And so we're like, this format sucks, and laser is forever, and real <laughs> film connoisseurs well, are never going to become DVD acolytes. get my laser disc when you pull it from, from my, my cold, cold dead, dead hands. hands. Well, and, and don't forget the competing format, DivX. Oh, yeah. Which oh, my goodness. A, um, a pay-per-view yeah. version yeah, of DVD, basically. So what was it about the DVD format that was inferior to the uh, to the laser disc experience. I mean, I'm sure you're about to say, well, absolutely everything. Well, no, at, at first no, the it, technology just wasn't ready. The right. whatever it was, the bit rate of uh, of the transfers or and the, the master the master and... the masters were still from the NTSC era and sometimes they were converting from uh, 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 from bad sources and it just wasn't ready. I mean, they they really, you know, put everything into DVD. It was a very right away. brief period where it was inferior yeah and we also had those i think i remember we bought those um i remember rob and i went to best buy and both got the same player it was a laser disc dvd combo player, right yeah. which wasn't a great dvd player either it was right. a better laser disc player than it was dvd so that also that helped bridge help. the yeah yeah bridge the gap but i remember the the first dvd that i noticed that said okay well this is this is better was starship troopers mm-hmm um, and it it really said, oh well, this looks really good, and I guess they're putting all their all their eggs into this basket because this looks amazing. Yeah, it was really those early Warner Brothers discs that were in the the snapper cases, the mm-hmm. like, yeah. cardboard snapper cases that were really mediocre. Yeah, but you start to see Sony came out with Fifth Element, right. Starship Troopers, yep. and some of the um, the other studios, and it was. Pretty quickly. I mean, even those Paramount came out with those double episode Star Trek. They right. released Star Trek at the time. It wasn't as a box set. It was two episodes a disc. Right. They so, were tentative with it, but they were good. Yeah, you know, they were really good. And you start to say, "Oh yeah, you know what? <laughs> this DVD may, may be around for a while." Yeah, and uh, and Plus then they were so much cheaper. So and much they took cheaper. up so much less space. And more oh ubiquitous. Storage. Everywhere sold DVDs. Yeah. Whereas Lasers, it was harder and harder to find. Because this is all pre-Amazon. Right. So, you know, you really had to seek out uh, boutique places to buy uh, Laserdisc. And, of course, it was the death knell for places like Laser Blazer and Dave's Video. Well, I remember going to Dave's Video and starting to see the DVDs show up in, you know, two two rows where there was used to be one row. And uh, you just every time I would come in, there was another section that was switched over, and then pretty soon there were all DVDs, and that was that. Was it Bill Hunt who had a DVD blog where he, he still, still does? And he still does. Digital Bits, which oh my is god, it's still around. It's a great I website. <laughs> I discovered that before I even had a DVD player, mm-hmm. and so you know, I would read about you know this this format. I was incredibly fascinated by it. Um, and you know, I, to me, it, it just seemed like something magical. I think the first disc that I bought, and it's not a great film or a great Bond film, but I remember how it looked and how it sounded and how um, and how different an experience that was from VHS was uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, and the opening that sequence was in Tomorrow Never Dies. A stunning DVD. I remember we put. I, at the time, I was running an independent film company. We put a, a like a home theatery type setup. We we bought Jim Carrey's old projector, and uh, I don't know how why, but anyway, we put it in the basement at Mindfire. And the first disc we got 
the demo disc was Tomorrow Never Dies, mm. and that opening scene at a quote-unquote terrorist arms bazaar, the worst yeah. super title I've ever seen. In <laughs> uh, uh, it was just amazing. It sounded absolutely amazing. That, that It was such a great disc. And I have to say that the Bond movies throughout the history of home video are among the best treatment of any film series. Right. Because... Other than the VHS, which were preceded by our Pink Panther cartoon, I never understood <laughs> why there would be a Pink Panther cartoon at the beginning of a James Bond movie. But the thing about that that was cool was a lot of them I had only seen on ABC and they were cut for time. Right. So it was like the first time I saw like the teaser in Goldfinger on, on those VHS. Then on Laserdisc, there were those gorgeous box sets. They did Goldfinger and Thunderball, yeah. John Cork. Yes. Um, incredible I mean that that was like the benchmark along with the Star Wars trilogy box set and just for um, the medium and by the time you get to DVD the Bond movies were treated well but they it, it reissued them you know forget double dipping it was like quadruple dipping oh, yeah. and by the time you get to the end of the DVD format and those Lowry 4K restorations mm -hmm. stunning and of course the special features John Cork did those amazing uh, documentaries about yeah all of the Bond movies up until GoldenEye, I think that's where he stopped. I think so. Um, and those, you know, those are up there. I mean, when people say, what are the best special features of all time? You know, certainly Charlie DeLazarica's Alien uh, documentaries, his Blade Runner work um, is remarkable. Uh, Michael Peller and Rob Burnett's uh, Lord, Lord of the Rings uh, materials, bonus features. And then, you know, John Cork's Bond features, you know, to me, that is like the holy grail of special features on uh, on home video. Well, and, and this is, I think, the reason why we all love physical media. Like, you know, it, the technology has continued to be refined so that we, you know, then went to Blu-ray and now we have 4K. But now so much of it is is becoming purely digital. It's all a streaming download on the various streaming platforms. And we don't have these wonderful special features, which are the things that I, I really love about owning a movie and 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 similarly, when you own a movie, you're not worried about, you know, uh, a licensing agreement expiring and somebody coming to your house and taking, you know, movies off of your shelf like happens at Netflix or Hulu. Well, or I'm kind of worried about that with Blu-ray because they can, if they want to, revoke the uh, key. And turn it off. They can turn it off. Yeah, I want to slightly disagree with you, Steve, about one thing, which is um, – how dare you? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Because I, I, I completely agree with you. You know about the death of special features being a terrible thing. Now, streaming is not necessarily responsible for that because if you look at iTunes, a lot of these retain the special features and have iTunes availability on streaming. The problem is the studios, which don't want to spend money on uh, right. this content anymore. So you have repurposed EPK, electronic press kits, you have stuff that they shot to promote the stuff at the time, but it's all pablum. There's no in-depth, uh, there's no uh, deep dive, there's there's no uh, criticism or anything controversial. Or, um, yeah. uh, you know, um, and, and I think that's really, really unfortunate. I, I completely agree that physical media is so important to retain because you're right, if somebody, a filmmaker, suddenly decides they wanna make changes, in something that they could one day you wake up and 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 what you thought you had has completely changed because most people don't download the stuff you have in your digital storage locker so they can just update it i mean even this is a small thing but i mean i know on mahal and drive you know laura herring in, in retrospect was unhappy that she did this nude scene and so he changed it in the next 
cut, you know, um, of, of Mulholland Drive and ever since. So it, 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 not that that's, you know, that sounds purient, but I'm using that as an example of um, something where the filmmaker has gone back retroactively and changed something. You know, of course, I can point to Star Wars. That's the easy, low-lying fruit of this discussion. Uh, and I'll always be grateful. And one of the reasons I kept my Star Wars laser discs, and subsequently the CAV version, the C, the other version, the CLV version, mm-hmm. um, with the black covers, with the illustrations of the stormtrooper, is because it's the last time the original versions were issued in a format that's not a bootleg that's of any quality. Right. Um, yeah, there were those kind of terrible DVD uh, releases that were packed in with the special editions, but right. they were yep. the, I believe, the Laserdisc transfers. They were the Laserdisc transfers. and They should have been called the FU editions. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, now people embrace streaming because of the convenience, and I admit I'm guilty of that oh, as anybody. Absolutely. Sometimes you, you might own a TV series on your shelf, but it's just easier to go to Netflix and call up the episode you want to watch rather than go to your shelf. Well, especially... I'm so... I may be jumping up through time a little bit, but I'm just going to mention that I have tried to get the best of both worlds here because I... The Next Generation episode? Both of them. Yes. No. It's Um, available on Amazon. I have have something called Plex, which is a program that will uh, will organize your, uh, your media... And I have I have ripped DVDs. I fully admit it because I own them and I bought them. Um, I've ripped DVDs, put them on my computer, and Plex now organizes them into a library, and I can watch them on my TV, on my iPad, on anywhere. And I have the convenience of streaming, and yet I still own the media. Mm. See, that's I think that's yeah. an ideal situation. It's a lot more work to get the stuff yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think it's a good investment in having a future proof well, at least of that stuff and I you know this is reminds me of a larger topic uh, that I, I wonder if we want to touch on a little bit um, it, which is the the notion of how we value this entertainment how you know how do younger generations value it do they value it in the same way that we value it because we, we started this conversation off talking about how when you wanted to watch a movie or TV show, you had to make an effort. You had to right. leave your house, go to a movie theater, buy a ticket. You had to sit in front of your TV, watch ad-supported television when it was on. Or you rented a VHS tape, or you right. bought a Laserdisc, or you bought a DVD. In in the years since, and, and the same thing happened in the music industry to a, a much greater extent. Um, that's another conversation, but... Do people value movies and television the same way that we valued them? I don't know because that, it's so ubiquitous. I, I, I don't know that the value is going to be. Uh, they're going to look at these things in the same way that that we do because there's a certain sweat equity that we had to to put into these things. Um, you know, for me, discovering Raiders of the Lost Ark on VHS was a little bit like being Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, it was a discovery. It was something that was not available to me that I had to find. Um, Our experiences with the 430 movies, you know, looking through the newspaper to figure out what was going to be on that that interested us. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was something that we had to invest beforehand um, that brought us to the material. And and frankly, even when it wasn't so good, I'm looking at you, King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, <laughs> we it. loved it and remembered it anyway. And, and I love it and remember it. Um, I think, on the other hand, 
one of the things that is also happening with with streaming is it's it's not just the easy availability of the material. And by the way, I think if when people decide they love a film or they love a show, they love it and mm-hmm. they're crazy for it. Um, I, I think the other thing is that there has been such a surge of content uh, that the signal to noise ratio is oh. incredibly out of whack. On the other hand, there is in fact a lot of signal. And the value that I think like I get from it is that um, I can discover something new every day relatively cheaply and just fall in love with it. I hadn't seen John Dies at the End, mm-hmm. and I finally watched it the other night. I loved it. I mm. loved it. I felt like I had discovered something. I love that feeling. And I discovered it because it was available to me, because I had the, the convenience of, of being able to find it. So I think it cuts both ways. It'll be interesting to see how my children experience See, that's really the question because I do feel like the ubiquity has devalued content. And I think that I think it just is, the act of calling it content devalues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, no, I completely I completely content, agree. Content. And I do feel that, you know, if you can eat chocolate every day, you're not going to try your piece. Right. And I think that we, because we didn't have access to chocolate every day, would try our peas. And so maybe you're going to watch like a John Ford movie or a Billy Wilder movie right. that as a kid, you you read the description and think, oh, the apartment? I don't know. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> but 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 you watched it because that's what was on. You're like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Right. And it, it, it fanned the flames of your passion for cinema. And then you wanted to see these things. Not smaller on a phone, but bigger right. on a, a huge screen. And we would go, I mean, I know, you know, all of us, you know, we'd go down to the Egyptian and see all these films we loved. And, oh, my God, I'm going to get to see this on the big screen. Right. Steve and I just went to see, for the first time, uh, on the big screen, Honor Majesty's Secret Service yeah, the other right. day. It's so, I, I and I feel that, that today, and I don't mean to say get off my lawn, kids, but yeah. that there's a desire, well, you know, if I can watch on the couch on my on my cell phone, you know, this is the generation that finds watching people on Twitch play video games fascinating. Right. So yeah. I'm a little worried about... <laughs> well, uh, well, and, and also, just to, to make it a little more literal in terms of valuing uh, entertainment or media, do they value it monetarily? Do people expect content entertainment to be free or, or they do. really cheap? Mm-hmm. You know, like they don't want to pay for a song that they like. They just want to listen to it on Spotify or YouTube or, or, well, or that's why the DVD revenues have dropped like a rock. 4K is a niche medium, much like Laserdisc was. It's never going to be what. DVD was it at heyday. People expect to go on Netflix and have access to literally every movie ever made and every TV series they expect it. It's not there. And 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 be able to watch it whenever they want. And it's just not realistic, you know. And uh, I think the next few years are going to be very uh, very revelatory in what happens to this uh, these mediums, media. That said, I mean, to me, the hope for the future is is this. Um, My nine year old, who until just a couple of years ago would tell me, Daddy, I don't really like movies or fiction because they're not true. And then I kicked him out of the house for a few years, and after he learned his lesson... Then you showed him the, 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 the fog of war with uh, Robert McNamara. He said, yeah. here, let me show you some documentaries. Exactly. And then he's like, oh, now I get it, Dad. Uh, no, you know, he's a he's a dinosaur freak, and so he finally discovered the, the Jurassic Park films. Um, and he watches those movies the way we watch Star Wars mm-hmm. or Star Trek movies. He watches them again and again and again. Um, you know, when uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom came out, which was not a great film, but he loved it. 
Um, he was so excited to go and see that in the theater and then go and see it again. Um, so he has a passion for these things, and he develops opinions about these things. Like, Dad, Jurassic Park 3 has the best story. And I'm like, you know what, kid? Alexander Payne wrote that. So you <laughs> might be on to something. That's really funny. Look, I don't want to hold up my kids as an example either because they actually have good taste and love movies. And, and, and they know that, uh, you know, my son knows that Temple of Doom is better than Last Crusade. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, uh, they watch Bringing Up Baby and Charade. And, and, and you know, but that, that was a conscious effort by my wife and I to make sure that they were introduced to, ah, the classics, you know. And and uh, fortunately, they've embraced this stuff. Uh, you know, my son, as Steve will attest, knows more about Star Wars than I do, <laughs> and uh, which is impressive, most impressive. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's not impossible, but it starts, you know, we're all people who love movies, who love TV, who love, you know, popular culture. So we have managed to sort of pass that down. And Steve, as Steve has to his cats. And um, so <laughs> I, um, I, but I wonder, you know, the, the, the average person, you know, who doesn't have that kind of. If you're a film lover, you're a film lover and you're going to really value this stuff. But I think to the average person who just likes to see movies, you know, I just don't know if they, if they are willing to put their money where their mouth is. You well, know, they better or, or because nine. that's who movies are being made for now. So, yeah. Well, that's a sad ending to uh, <laughs> the, the episode. But You're I will welcome. say, I think uh, we, we shall uh, have to uh, visit this place again, maybe in a year, and see where this uh, seed has sprung up, uh, what, what life is, uh, has risen in the Mutara Nebula. Uh, because this is not uh, uh, an episode that ends today or, or tomorrow. This is an ongoing concern. And as you said, Darren, this is something that uh, over the next couple of years, uh, we didn't even touch really much on Hulu and Netflix and streaming uh, other than to say it's a convenience. And well, this isn't about the birth of the future. This is about the death of the past. Well, in 2023, when we're having the argument about whether or not it's good or bad that movies can now be beamed directly into our cerebellum, right. um, I think we can revisit the morality of the question. <laughs> now, if guys want to uh, 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 continue, people want to continue the conversation, where can they follow you on social, uh, Steve Melching? Well, I'm on Twitter at Stephen Melching. And Darren? Twitter at, at Darren Doc with one R. Ashley? At Ashmaster Zero. That's Ashmaster Zero. <laughs> and uh, this is uh, Mark A. Altman at Mark A. Altman, doc, uh, at Mark A. Altman on Twitter and Instagram. And next week, the 4.30 movie will be back with its regular format, and we will be programming the only secret agent with a license to kill and thrill. It will be James Bond week. Idris here. Elba, here in person. It will be James Bond week <laughs> here on the 4.30 movie. So uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, it's been great having you join us for the 4.30 movie.